Hello, and welcome to the Plant Native Nebraska podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Barlman. If you are new to tuning in, this show is for native plant enthusiasts, aspiring gardeners, suburban homeowners, growers, and thinkers anxious to learn more about growing Native American plants and creating habitat for wildlife. If this sounds like you, you've come to the right place. In today's episode, Native Gardens, Happy Soil, and a Green Future, we chat with Dr. Tyler Moore, Associate Professor of Biology at Bellevue University and President of Green Bellevue, about how Native Gardens influence microbial soil communities, carbon sequestration, the photosynthesis you might have forgotten about since grade school, and your mother-in-law's turf grass. Come hang out with us as we talk some science. Enjoy. Thanks, Tyler, for being here today. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you about something I know very little about. Um, but first off, can you tell us a little bit about your educational background? Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Um, I'm from Lincoln, and so I did my undergraduate in biology at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln, um, and did a research mostly on, on viruses and the immune system as an undergrad, and I went on to do my PhD at the University of Nebraska in the Nebraska Center for Virology. So mostly studying um, viruses and how viruses interact with the immune system and how we respond to viruses. Uh, and then I did a postdoc at the National Institutes of Health at the NIAID, so the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Uh, and now I'm at Bellevue University and we've got a myriad of you know wide range of projects that we kind of have the opportunity to do things in my educational background and kind of explore new areas and I had no idea that you had a health background I had, I just thought of you as the biology professor so I didn't know you had studied all that stuff that's impressive did you always have this kind of like botany interest uh, along with the interest in health topics or how did you like segue into this interest in like native plants and the ecosystem yeah well I'll say I've, I've always been interested in all aspects of biology so when I was an undergrad, I, I actually worked in a, a bird behavior lab um, with a, a wonderful scientist, Dr. Al Camel, where we studied bird cognition, and I absolutely loved it. But when I got to Bellevue, and we have students who are looking to do projects in all sorts of directions, and kind of combined with the fact that I had kids and I didn't want to be going out, I was really into photography. I didn't want to be going out on adventures all the time, leaving my kids at home. I wanted to be able to pop out in my backyard and take photos. I was got really into native plants, just building kind of a photo habitat in my backyard because I just wanted things to photograph if I could pop out for an hour or two because um, I didn't want to go you know, on a multi-day excursion and leave my family. So that's kind of how it all started. And then learning about a little bit of the biology of that, and then kind of working on some projects here on campus. Um, I think all of us, all of us try to be practical, but I think we always end up where we end up, right? For a reason, like we always wander kind of a little bit further closer to what we actually want to be doing. So that's great. Can you tell us a little bit about Green Bellevue? I understand that you're a, a, a newer president in that organization. Yeah, so Green Bellevue is is over a decade old. It's It's the nonprofit to try to, establish some of the environmental uh, plans for the city of Bellevue. So, you know, benefiting a wide range of areas with zero waste and 
clean energy as well as as habitat spaces so reducing invasive species and promoting native habitat spaces i think right now we have a lot of really good projects going on with zero waste working with the high schools to try to eliminate food waste and we also have a lot of good projects going on trying to increase habitat in bellevue which kind of has the dual function of generally supporting insects and birds but also just kind of making the city a little bit more interesting totally agree um but diving into this sciencey micro topic of soil communities um so today we're talking about the topic of an academic paper you wrote which was generally about how native gardens impact the soil community so can you give us um a little backstory about how this paper even came about, like how the idea was even talked about. Yeah, so we, we've we been getting more into doing um, high throughput sequencing, which is basically you, it's a new technology where you can, you can take and get all of the genetic information from these samples. Um, and it's a really powerful tool for getting a lot of information from you know, samples that we've been doing it with um, to get the whole human genome sequenced. We've been doing it to get bacterial communities of the human gut um, and really kind of pushing this technology to learn new things about the genetics all over. So we have this tool in place and, and really we've been working with a lot of people in the area on kind of helping grow these native gardens a lot of work had been done on kind of the more macroscopic side, uh, the insects and the birds that are supported by these areas, but we were really kind of curious of what was maybe going on in the soils from a microbial level. Are these small little gardens able to do anything measurable to the underlying microbes? So we kind of got in touch with some of the people, um, kind of put a call out for people to let us take some samples and add some students who are wanting to work on this project. So, you know, we spent a summer getting samples and then, you know, the next couple of years doing the processing and analysis and everything. I feel like this is a super sciencey kind of thing that's going to go way over most people's heads. So like, why should the average person like care about what's going on in the soil? Like what's the big deal there? Yeah, I'll I'll say it's it's going over our heads too. It's um the functions of bacterial ecosystems is a is a field that we don't know that much about. And I say we as a human species. But all of these bacteria do really unique things and they have their own ecosystems the same way that, you know, insects and birds and spiders all have ecosystems with interactions and they might even be doing more important things because they can do metabolic things um, and convert uh, certain molecules into other molecules that no other species on the planet can do and so all of these little things that we can't see are doing things that really make the planet livable for everyone else it's a little difficult to understand the importance of that um and we're just beginning to see how some of these species are, are functioning individually but 
would say for one, it's just fascinating, right? So the same way that it's fascinating to learn about insect life cycles or bird migrations, um, microbes are just a, another part of the living world. So this is the only planet that we know of that has living things on it. And so the most abundant ones are the are the tiny ones. To me, I think it's fascinating because we're kind of talking about these invisible communities under the surface, right? Like birds we can see and we can see dragonflies and we can see the bumblebees and we can see all these cool wasps and stuff. So we kind of like immediately visually see the benefit of creating habitat. But when we're talking about these soil communities, it's kind of like unbeknownst to us if we really go down and dig like they're these fully functioning invisible communities that are just kind of autonomous down there and doing all this stuff that we're just, like you said, finding out about. It's really cool. Yeah, and in the interactions are sometimes more complicated because it takes some understanding of of chemistry to know um, why uh, a molecule is an interesting substrate for a bacteria and and what they convert it to. It's a little bit more esoteric than just understanding that uh you know a spider eats a fly because we can visualize it and we can see it um but the conversion of one molecule to another um is sometimes a little bit hard to visualize but some of these same interactions are happening at the microbial level there are bacteria that are predators that are you know eating other bacteria and they're they're kind of keystone species within these little microbial trophic layers and there's some that are you know interacting with plants in a symbiosis and there's some that are interacting with plants as pathogens and there's fungi that are collaborating with the bacteria and then they're fighting bacteria and and all the while there's orders of magnitude more species in this little microbial community than there are in the animals so you know we're talking about thousands of species all in this small little piece of soil as opposed to you know you might go out into your garden and count you know a dozen species of bee but we're talking thousands of species of microbes each doing something very different sounds a little claustrophobic actually <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah planet earth is wild um so okay before we really dive deeper into this soil stuff um what are the basic ways a native habitat garden helps the environment, like super basic ways. Yeah, I think these are the things that we were kind of introduced to from the beginning. And when I was talking about how I was trying to build photo habitat, I was basically trying to build places for little insects and birds. So we're kind of thinking about, well, this is a the bottom level of the trophic pyramid where you're moving light energy up into things that can't photosynthesize right so plants can photosynthesize and native plants are getting eaten by insects better than exotic plants and because of that you have that energy from photosynthesis is moving into other organisms so we now have insects that have eaten plants and now we have insects that are capable of being eaten by birds and so you kind of create this whole community of animals interacting um, because of these specialized interactions. And so much of this has been studied, not to say that there's all of the questions have been answered, but we generally know that um, 
native plants that co-evolved with these insects and birds have more ecological connections than the exotic plants that didn't. So those have been, you know, those ecological connections have been pretty well studied. I had never, I think that's a great way visually that you described it, how these plants are um, undergoing photosynthesis and then that's getting converted into energy that's going into these insects that have developed, you know, these historical interactions with these plants. I'd never really thought about it from it, from that biology standpoint. It's kind of interesting, you know, we all kind of learned about photosynthesis in grade school, probably. Sometimes we forget yeah. about the fact that photosynthesis is really the, the main way that we take the energy from the sun and put it in a usable form for every other thing on the planet. So the all essentially of the energy that the planet uses to do all of this life that only exists here it doesn't exist on mars or venus it's only existing on earth all of that energy comes from the sun and it comes from the sun in a way that can be utilized because of photosynthesis photosynthesis is making these interesting molecules that can be eaten by insects or can be eaten by mammals and so that's where it all starts but if you have photosynthesis occurring and then it's a dead end because those plants can't be eaten by anything else, that's kind of where the ecosystem stops. Yeah, you're right. I'd totally forgotten about photosynthesis, like totally. Um, so I think that's really cool that you've brought that up because a lot of us are going to be like, oh, you know, we had never really revisited the idea of photosynthesis for a really long time. So cool. Um, going underneath the surface of the soil now. Um, what is it, um, what kind of conclusions did you and your research team get to? What did you guys discover? One of the simple conclusions here would be that if we're comparing a native garden to the area that is adjacent to it, which is just turf grass, those native gardens have more different kinds of bacteria in them and the distribution of those different bacteria are more similar and we call that evenness um, so for instance if you, if there are 10 species of bacteria in here all 10 of them have a relatively equal abundance as opposed to an uneven distribution where there may be 10 different species of bacteria but one of them is the most abundant and all the others are relatively rare. So this, this is kind of a diversity measure that accounts for how even everything is in there. And if you think about every bacteria doing something a little bit different because they're a unique species, that diversity is, is more species, but it's also more species that all have relatively similar abundances in the environment. So Effectively, that means that the soil is more able to um, metabolize unique compounds. It's more able to make an environment that's hospitable for plants during a drought. Uh, it's more able to sequester carbon because all of these different functions are, are functions of bacteria. And the more that you have that diversity there, the more those functions are accounted for. It's the same thing that you would maybe see with, with insects that... Um, if you have a bunch of flowering plants and if you have one bee species, that one bee species is, 
is going around doing fine, but if that one bee species has a preference for a particular kind of plant, then the other plant that it may not have a preference for won't get as readily pollinated. But if you have multiple different species of bee, then all these different flowers with the different preferences um, are going to get pollinated. So that's kind of, it's just a general benefit of diversity. And I think the, the shocking thing here was that these are small little plots. These aren't huge prairies. These are just little yards um, that were once turf grass, and the turf grass was killed off by, you know, a variety of means, and then converted over to a little native plant garden. And just that act alone was enough to improve the soil diversity and kind of shift the relative abundance of some of the species over to some that might be uh, more functionally beneficial. Yeah, what I'm kind of thinking of in my head as you're talking is kind of like when we are talking about our own personal health and we're talking about like increasing the good bacteria in our gut. Like that's what I'm thinking of as you're describing this because I'm thinking like there's good bacteria out there that help things function more efficiently. So like if we have all this, you know, good bacteria in our gut, like our stomach works more efficiently, like we're healthier. So I'm kind of thinking about, you know, all these little, I'm imagining them in my head, all these little bacteria that live in the soil, they're helping the soil to be more efficient because they're there. So when you're talking about microbial diversity, you're talking about, you know, when we think of bacteria, we don't think of it as being very diverse, right? And most of the time we're thinking of bacteria in, in a bad sense, like we're thinking of bad germs, bad bacteria. This concept is that there's lots and lots of different kind of microbes that can be in the soil. And your findings are basically saying, you know, if we're comparing a little tiny garden plot with mostly native plants to turf grass, we're seeing an expansion of all those different kind of microbes that can be present. That's basically what this diversity is that you're talking about. Yeah, I think it's it's maybe kind of our our bias as humans and how we perceive the world that we think think that there's not a lot of diversity in bacteria. If you look at them under the microscope, um, they tend to all look like little dots. But you could almost take an analogy of if aliens were to look at the planet, and they might think that all vertebrates look the same, right? They, mm. You're just kind of looking at, at a telescope, and you see these little dots moving around on the planet. But, but that would be, um, you know, grouping, you know, giraffes with birds, right? That to our eye, those are such different things. But actually, a giraffe and a bird are much more closely related than most of these bacteria that we're talking about. So we're talking about, um, it would be like comparing a giraffe with an earthworm. We're, we're talking about these hugely different things. They just so happen to be in this package of a bacteria. Mm. And that package of a bacteria to our eye looks very similar. But they're incredibly different. And they just so happen to be different in ways that are a little bit harder to communicate and a little bit harder to understand because they're just different in the enzymes they have and the things that they use for food, the places they live. And they're different probably in ways that we don't fully understand yet. I like this meta concept of like complexities underneath the surface of things. Um, that's really, really interesting. And I, I don't think now I'll ever think of bacteria the same way, to be honest. <laughs> So I know um, you talked a little bit about, 
you know, when we see these dynamic changes in the soil from a diverse set of bacteria that are in it, you talked a little bit about how the soil is able to sequester carbon better. Um, can you explain carbon sequestering to people who aren't already familiar with that term? Yeah, so it kind of goes back to photosynthesis, right? So molecules and can are these, uh, you know, the elements on our periodic table can occur in different kinds of molecules. So carbon is, is one of those molecules, and it can be floating around in the air as carbon dioxide. Um, so that is one of the things that's contributing to, you know, the global warming and, and subsequent climate change. Carbon dioxide is also the source of carbon for plants. So all life on Earth is based on carbon. We use all of our structures are based out of carbon. And plants get their carbon originally from the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So they take that carbon dioxide and they use the energy from the sun to build that into a bigger molecule. Um, starts usually with glucose, which is a simple sugar, uh, but then into all sorts of other things. Now what they do then is they're going to take that those carbon sugars and move them down into their roots because that's where they're going to store that carbon. As you see, say like a grass in the winter, it turns brown, all of that above ground stuff dies off, but they come back the next year. And they come back the next year because of all of those carbons that are stored in the ground. Mm. Now, that carbon that's stored in the ground came from the atmosphere. So that's carbon dioxide that's been taken out of the atmosphere and pushed into the roots in the ground. So when we say carbon sequestration, we mean taking carbon out of the air and putting it somewhere where it can't function as a greenhouse gas. Mm. So converting it to something other than carbon dioxide and then putting it somewhere where it, it can't be used. So maybe it's converted into a fat, which is a big long chain of carbons, or maybe a sugar. Those kind of things don't function as a greenhouse gas. And of course, if they're in the soil, they can't. So plants are doing that by moving that carbon. Um, bacteria are also doing that. So they have all of these metabolic processes. And, and in fact, they might be doing it in a way that's even more important than the photosynthesis of plants. So embracing carbon, knowing more about it, knowing that it's important for, you know, basically all processes on earth, but looking at it you know, when we're, when we're focused, when our aim is to improve carbon sequestering in the soil, knowing that there's a mutual benefit, the plants are benefiting and we're benefiting because we're taking it out of the air where we don't want it to be um, and putting it into the ground. Carbon dioxide, I mean, it's always been a very dynamic thing, right? That it's coming out into the air and then it's getting pulled back in. The only issue is now is we're taking millions of years worth of carbon dioxide and we're releasing it all in the matter of you know decades or a century so um mm. this just not something that the planet has experienced before um mm. and sequestration into the soil is is a, a way to mitigate some of that but you i mean this has been fairly well studied you can't account for that with simple um plant-based or bacteria-based or even um algae-based in the ocean um, carbon fixation. And when I say fixation, I mean taking carbon dioxide and, and metabolically converting it to a non 
gas form, a form that can be used by bacteria and plants. So like a sugar. So what you're saying is like, for instance, we shouldn't see like planting a prairie as the ultimate fix it to the greenhouse gas problem, but it does help in some sense. It's kind of like, uh, you know, putting some band-aids on wounds, right? The band-aids are great, but you'd also like to stop getting stabbed. So, I mean, ultimately, what do these findings mean for sustainability? Um, you know, comparing turf grass to native habitat and in a in a small scale, what effect does, you know, soil ecology really have for sustainability? We know that everything that's going on in the soil bacterial community is essential for basically the the global ecosystem and all the global ecosystem processes. The monoculture of turf is just not as good at supporting those processes. So um, what we're seeing from a kind of a sustainability standpoint here, and if you kind of think about it from a kind of an urban gardening or an urban planning perspective, you can make a much more functional underground environment by just having a much more functional plant community. Um, so if you can take that turf and just convert it to a relatively diverse native plant community, it doesn't have to even be anywhere near the diversity of a prairie. It can still be more beneficial than that turf in terms of the bacterial diversity, which we know is associated with function. And it shifts the whole overall community to one um, that includes more taxa that are involved in sequestration of greenhouse gases and you know other things such as you know being keystone microbial species as well so if we're trying to plan cities out to support pollinators we could also be planning cities out it's just kind of another incentive doing the same thing that we've been thinking about doing for the macroecology just do it knowing that it's also supporting microecology mm. And I feel like people are talking about this topic more and more now, um, kind of these goings on in the soil, not necessarily bacteria in the soil, but goings on in the soil. Like I'm thinking about legumes and how they fix nitrogen, um, the relationship between fungi um, and healthy soil. Um, yeah, I've, I've been reading a lot about, you know, what fungi are doing. Um, underneath the surface because honestly I was a little ignorant I didn't really understand that mushrooms were like the above ground the mushrooms aren't the fungi itself they're like a product of the fungi right um, so I learned about that and uh, I was really blown away you know by all the stuff like even like the study of trees and like you know the the idea that they can communicate with each other under the ground and stuff so, I mean, knowing what I know about that, I wasn't surprised to know that, you know, native gardens are creating healthier soil underground, but were you guys surprised? Was there something you found that you didn't anticipate? Frankly, it, it was a little because, um, so there had been some work in um, prairie restorations. And so there, there have been um, some papers studying if you take, uh, an agricultural field, for instance, like a corn monoculture, and then you convert that back into a prairie. So you seed it and restore it. Um, 
And then there's been some other studies comparing relic prairies to restored prairies in terms of microbial diversity. And it's taking decades. Um, and sometimes it's kind of extrapolated out, maybe even centuries, to restore the full microbial diversity of a relic prairie. So the idea that we could just kind of kill off some turf, plant some native plants in that area, and it would make any difference whatsoever on these small timescales that we're looking at. Um, it is a little surprising. And I think it's it's kind of optimistic to know that uh, it's difficult to get to, just like when we're talking about insect diversity, it's difficult to get to the level that you might see in a relic prairie, but it's not difficult to improve upon turf grass. Mm. So um, if, if you don't set your standard on perfect, which perfect would be a relic, but instead set your standard on better than what the default is, I think we can feel really optimistic that um, it's not that hard to do better. Um, that turf is a is a really uh, low diverse plant community, even in the weediest turf. And as you might imagine, this so the study we're comparing turf grass that is adjacent to the native plant gardens, mm. um, which means that we're sampling turf grass at the homes of the people who have the native grass or the native plant gardens, um, which means it's probably not the most pristine turf either. So this is, we did assessments of all of the plant communities in the turf compared to the native plant community as well, but this generally was what you might consider weedy turf because people who have native plant gardens tend to not use a lot of pesticides on their turf. Right. So we're even comparing it to um, maybe the most ideal turf that you could get and not, you know, we're not talking about golf course fairway turf. Right. Which a lot of people are, are probably doing. This is a turf that tends to have some clover in it, some dandelions, um, some creeping charlie. Um, this is turf that in some cases, a lot of these people weren't even watering their turf. A lot of them weren't fertilizing their turf. It was just, it was just turf. Basically the hippiest turf we could think yes, of. Yes, <laughs> yeah. And if yeah. so, we can improve upon that. Um, think of the default that is the landscape. It's it's really easy to improve upon that. And, you know, we, we don't even really know yet what the beneficial outcomes could be. And so, you mentioned fungi. Yes. Really, this paper in particular... Um, didn't look at fungus at all um and that's one of the things we're doing with some subsequent projects here is starting to look more at fungi and if we don't know much about soil bacterial communities and how they're functioning here we know even less about um, fungus and there's some technical reasons for that it's been a while since i've watched these documentaries but the mycelium is that the right word yeah. um because i know it's that relationship between, so the mycelium is underground. Um, and I can't even honestly remember. I just remember it being important. Yeah. So fungus, it they have different kind of body plans. So one of the plans is that hyphae, which is kind of a network of, of little branches. And mm. that's mycelia. And one of the great things about that is it 
achieve something that might be one of the more important uh, facets of all of biology, and that is surface area. Mm. Um, so much in, in all of biology is governed by surface area. So because surface area is your access to the outside world. Um, when we raise the little hairs on our arms, you know, we get more surface area. Um, when we bundle our arms close to our body, we reduce our surface area and we warm ourselves up. But mycelia have all of those little strands that are going out, all of these like little noodles. And noodles have really high amounts of surface area, which allows them to interact with the soil um, in a really complex way. They're able to uptake nutrients really well. Mycelia can communicate between um, long distances. And this, what you might be talking about is like um, the fungi between trees serve as like a network mm. of communication. Mm. So trees can signal to each other um, indirectly through fungal signaling. We know that fungi is really important for plant growth. Um, we're just still learning how to get that information out from these sequencing projects and, and yeah. how to learn how that relates to the plants and the soil. I'll be curious if you guys do have something come out in the future studying fungi or, um, you know, mycelium connections and its influence on the soil. I think that that would be really fascinating. I would totally be into that. So, I mean, are we setting turf grass up to be public enemy number one? I feel like, you know, I think you did a good job at bringing it up a few times. You know, we're talking about monocultures. Um, you know, as being a big reason why turf grass is problematic, you know, like a corn monoculture that people are trying to fix. I know one of the prairies we toured as a group uh, was originally farmland, and they converted it back and restored it, you know, to a, to a prairie similar of what would have been there before. Like, why are monocultures so dangerous? Should we really see turf grass or any sort of monoculture as the enemy as opposed to someone who just likes lilacs, someone who just likes roses. Yeah, we know from a microbial standpoint that plant diversity seems to be associated with soil microbial diversity. The vast amount of functions that these bacteria in the soil have, um, which you could you could really essentially give them all the functions. So if bacteria go extinct, the planet is toast. It becomes a desert um, very quickly. Extinctions start from the top down if bacteria go extinct. The more diversity you have in plants, the more diversity and the more function you're going to have in the bacteria. Turf is kind of inherently non-diverse. We, we kind of do it that way on purpose. I think um, part of the psychology there is that there's not a lot of places in nature where there's a monoculture. So if we see a monoculture, we know that humans had some kind of control over the landscape. So I think it gives us some kind of sense of control um, because you don't look out onto a field and see one species of grass over that whole field. It, mm. it tends to not occur. So that does give the sense of, of human control over an ecosystem. And if you just kind of think of our evolutionary past, our ability to control our natural environment led to our success. And so um, first it was the ability to survive, you know, lions 
and you know hunt you know wild undulates but then it kind of moved into our ability to cultivate crops and this like Mm -hmm. agriculture is inherently Mm -hmm. um, a control over the environment and the human population explosion you know 10,000 years ago was probably largely due to our ability to cultivate which is really creating monocultures so I think there's an inherent bias for those kind of cultures that said turf grass is really functional for a lot of things you know that so I tend to have the mindset of, um, if you're using it, use it, try to make it as unharmful as possible, but, um, there's not a lot of really good native alternatives for high traffic areas. So if you want to put native plants in some area that you're going to be playing soccer over all the time, you're probably going to kill them. Turf grass has been bred and selected to have a lot of turf on it. So it's good for select areas. Um, but not good for every area, which I mean, a lot of us, you know, already kind of vibe with and know, you know, it's kind of common sense, but we kind of forget the more we sterilize above ground, that would translate to, you know, we're sterilizing more stuff below ground. Um, I guess I wouldn't necessarily connect the two. Like if, if someone's going to the store to buy Roundup to kill some weeds, they're not necessarily going to think of all the stuff underneath the surface that they're wiping out or, you know, that they're affecting. Um, And I think it's interesting you started talking about agriculture because humans have gotten pretty good at surviving, right? From our ability to be really savvy and really manipulate the environment to our benefit. I don't know because I'm very young still, but you know what, the last 50 years, you know, it's kind of it's kind of shifted from mere like cultivating or manipulating the land to like actually sterilizing it. You know, all these chemicals that are that are being used by so many people now and modern agriculture itself, the way that these huge fields of crops are just sprayed, these these outlying little drifts of, you know, milkweed or whatever that used to be able to grow kind of on the edges of this land, well, now they're using such strong chemicals that that stuff is just getting wiped out. So I think it's interesting to think of that transition from just mere cultivating, surviving, manipulating the land to, you know, actually intervening too much, actually making something that's super, super unnatural. I like the idea that you talked about monocultures as as being unnatural because I wouldn't necessarily think of it in that context either. I just, you know, in my simple mind, I'm like, okay, a monoculture is bad because it's not diverse. But thinking of it as being completely unnatural, that's a whole new way of looking at it. I think that savviness is what has extended to kind of the agricultural practices you're talking about too. Um I think of like what you're talking about is like engineering plants, so they're resistant to Roundup. Yes, that's what I was thinking of. Not quite getting that. Yeah, the it's um so in doing that, then you can spray whole fields with glyphosate and you know kill all plant material mm. in that field besides mm. what you're interested in, and that largely comes from scientists who are humans who are trying to solve a problem, mm. and and humans can get really fixated on how to solve a very complicated problem that sometimes we don't realize what the implications of that solution will be 
it's a, it's an incredible achievement to be able to engineer a soybean plant to be resistant to this broad spectrum herbicide it's incredibly technically challenging decades of work go into this mm. and it's it's very difficult to um kind of marry that idea together of this really complicated problem that you've solved with what might be the you know the negative consequences that are associated yeah i'm kind of thinking of like medication right so you know there's there's really smart people that you know work together to come up with a medicine that that solves a problem or that helps pretty substantially with the problem but then you can have side effects that are now associated with that that medication that's been introduced to our body so it's kind of like a similar concept with the environment you know we can have really smart people who are coming up with a really genius way to to solve an agricultural problem but then there can be new consequences associated with that that, that we didn't anticipate because we were just really adamant on finding a solution really interesting yeah it's always the the ian malcolm quote of the scientists being so concerned whether they could do something they didn't stop and think about whether they should mm. and i i think that's the the natural tendency of science sometimes is it's it's solving problems and then the idea is well we'll solve this problem and then we'll leave it to the policymakers to figure out later because mm. it's not our job mm. I think that's that's honestly a really good way to start wrapping up everything is like, you know, can we versus should we, <laughs> you know, like I, it's perfectly legal for me to have a whole property full of turf grass, but should I, um, you know, would it be much more reasonable, efficient, beneficial for me to have a small area of turf grass where my kids can play, they can run around you know, we can play bocce ball or, you know, whatever, but then let the rest of the property be more natural, um, definitely less human involved than it needs to be. So, I mean, what do you think, you know, this general topic of, of soil ecology or, or even more specifically um, supporting these really diverse bacteria communities in the soil really means for the native plants dialogue um i know we talked about it being you know just kind of like an added benefit to the package um but really why why should you know if someone's listening in what's the one thing they should take away from our talk today like why should they care about these invisible goings on what's what's the takeaway i think the the simple takeaway could be that ecosystems have functions and interactions that we probably don't know about. Mm. And just because something is not studied yet, it doesn't mean it's not important. So that's probably um, from the perspective of there may be many native bees that are visiting uh, an exotic flower that you see. But we don't know all of the ecological interactions that are taking place that co-evolved with that native plant. And that's probably the same case for all of the systems, not just insects, not just birds, but probably microbes and fungi. And so if you want to err on the side of supporting ecologies and err on the side of a function, then you should probably go back to the system that was most functional as much as possible. 
because even though um, there's parts that you have observed that might be fully functional in an exotic plant community, um, we don't know what we're missing. There may be things that are unstudied, and that lesson has been seen over and over. So I think if we're going to err on the side of of being functional, you know that there may be information that we don't know yet that is beneficial mm -hmm. about these particular plant species. This kind of reminds me of that common phrase. It's usually in my head, so I think it's really interesting we're ending this way, but like the wise person admits that there's things that it's possible they don't know. Like the wise person admits they might not know everything. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it's kind of like that concept. Well, we know there's things that are important, the things that, that are coming out in studies and academic papers and, you know, by entomologists and soil ecologists and all that. We're finding out that there's some really important things going on, but there's actually the possibility there's an infinite amount of important things going on that we just don't have the capacity to know yet. Um, so I think that's really compelling. I like how you said we don't know what we're missing because if we are kind of assuming that everything's fine um, and we're not really digging under the surface of things, there could be a wide range of issues or problems or dynamics between you know, those communities or the molecules underground that we couldn't even begin to understand. So that's, that's a definite compelling reason. Another compelling reason to plant diversely, I think. Yeah, we, um, and I guess, notably, like in this past study, and some others, we only looked at native plant diverse gardens, we definitely don't look at diverse exotic gardens, which very well could support more um, bacterial diversity than turf grass but we purposefully chose to look at native gardens compared to turf because of the other benefits that we know native gardens have in terms of insect support bird interactions um, lepidopteran communities and so we have the assumption that we know things that are more beneficial with those there's probably other things that we don't know mm. I like how, you know, this is just one more kind of piece of evidence that's showing the native plants thing. It's not just a fad. It's not just a, it's not just an, an empty minded, you know, craze that people it's, it's the end thing that people are doing now. And really it has no benefit. Um, I like how this paper and this research you guys have done is just another way of showing like, look, this isn't an empty headed fad. There's some stuff to pay attention to. Um, so thank you for doing the research. Um, and I'll be more curious um, in the future as more research comes out because um, I'm I'm interested, I'm fascinated by it all. But yeah, it's been a real pleasure having you on. Um, so thanks for thanks for coming and explaining some really in-depth science stuff to uh, <laughs> a non-science person like me and, and others. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. And, you know, of course, thanks to uh, my students who, you know, worked so hard on this project with me as well and collaborators, because I think people sometimes forget that the faculty are kind of the ones who are the face of it, but it's really students or it's people in college who are the ones who do so much of the work. So mm -hmm. I was not aware of that. It. Yeah, I was not aware of that. So thank you for sharing that. Awesome. Well, it's been fun. Thanks again.
Yeah, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Plant Native Nebraska podcast. If you need notes on anything mentioned in today's episode, check our website, plant-native-nebraska.captivate.fm for more info. I want you to know you've made this podcast special just by listening in. But if you found real value in today's talk, you can both financially support future episodes and dive deeper into the topics we share by finding us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash plant native Nebraska. Thanks for listening.